Kia ora everyone, morena. Welcome this very early on a Sunday. Um, my name's Miriam Smith and uh, it's been a great pleasure to work this year with the fabulous team at Script to Screen uh, to help program this wonderful event. So um, thank you, thank you all for being here. And this morning we have the mini addresses with three very talented filmmakers from our own shores um, who are going to be talking about what the theme Playing With Risk means to them and their work. I would really like to thank the Random Group, our fabulous sponsors for presenting this session, so thank you. Um, and a little bit about each of our speakers. Well, first up, we'll have uh, the incredibly talented Florian Harvick, who to date has made six feature films uh, from, oh, just so many, Love Story, Pulp, and the upcoming Spookers. Um, and he's got a lot of very exciting projects in the pipes. Uh, then we'll have the fabulous Jackie Van Beek, who's made seven short films that have played all around the world and is currently uh, in post-production, finishing her first feature film, The Inland Road, so we can't wait to see it. <laughs> and last but not least, we've got Stallone, I've been practicing his last name, Vaya Onga Iwasa, who, uh, <laughs> thank you, um, who uh, first on the scene, uh, onto the filmmaking, feature film scene earlier this year, after 10 years working as a freelance camera operator and director in television, making his Samoan comedy hit, Three Wise Cousins, which he self-funded, self-released, and just knocked it out of the park at the box office here in Australia and currently in the States. So, so thanks for coming and welcome to the stage, the one and only Florian. Morning, everyone. Ooh. Yeah, hey. So, um, risk. Woohoo! <laughs> 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 um, five years ago, I was in New York on a subway platform waiting for a um, do I need this? waiting for a train and busy platform. And this um, young woman walked down. She was wearing like a black veil, and she just looked really striking. It's kind of like a scene out of a movie standing down there. And I wanted to talk to her, but I just, you know, was like, oh, no, I'm not going to do that. And then I had a, a voice come into my head, and it was my own voice. And um, it was, Florian, if you don't talk to this um, woman right now, you might regret it for the, for the rest of your life. And I was like, fuck, okay, shit. <laughs> so I just walked over, <laughs> um, you know, int introduced myself, and she, she talked back. And, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And yeah, we, we jumped on the train and it was, we went under the Hudson River for about five, five or six minutes. And, and I'll never forget the conversation we had. And, and as she got off on the next stop, I was on my way to see a movie. And, and when she got off, she just said, she just looked at me and smiled and she said, we'll, we'll see each other again. And that was it. And I never bumped into her again. Uh, <laughs> but but that, that kind of thing, um, if you don't do it, you'll regret. You might regret it for the rest of your life. That's always what what goes into my mind when I'm when I'm yeah when I'm risking something. And it's usually I find filmmaking easier than risking life stuff. And um, so I've 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 made films with small, intimate teams and low budgets, so I I can afford to risk things. And that that year in New York. Um, I'd spent the year 
writing a script and developing a documentary and I was going to make them when I come back to New Zealand and I applied for funding and just before leaving New York I found out with both cases um, I wasn't successful. So I thought, shit, I better stay in New York and make a film here. So I managed to change my ticket and I um, Skype with my editor friend Peter O'Donoghue in Sydney and I said, Peter, um, we're going to make a film in New York. Um, I'm going to book you your ticket in a in a couple of months, and and um, yeah, and it's going to be an improvised feature film. And when you get here, I'll tell you what the story is, and we'll improvise it. And he was on board; he was excited. And I met Marines Banchego, a talented photographer living in New York, who was wanting to get into more cinematography. And I pitched this idea as well to her that we'll make an improvised feature film, and that I'll think of a story. And anyway, um, we organized this shoot, very, very small, and I managed to sort of self-fund the shoot. And then a week before um, they were about to arrive, and they'd blocked out, you know, timely lives to do this, I still didn't have a story that I thought was good enough <laughs> to go with. And I had a bit of a freak out, and I was like, oh man, Florin, what are you doing? Like, you know, like, think, 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 you know, shouldn't always making decisions without thinking them through properly. Um, and then I started telling people, um, like, in, in my local um, deli and some people on the street, I told them my problem when they asked me how I, how I am, because I'm honest, and I just tell them. And then they started giving me film ideas. You know, you've got to make a love story, and you've got to do this. And then I was like, oh, my God, this is it. I'm going to make a film asking people on the street for what happens. And then we acted out. And then I, I met an actress. I didn't audition her. I just said, do you want to be in a movie? And everyone came, and the whole film, we started making a film and editing it, and it was the most sort of risky way to make a film because we're making it and writing it where the people were writing it with me, and there was no way of knowing, you know, where it was going to go. So, so, I, so I had like a really, and it was like one of the best filmmaking experiences I've ever had. And then um, when that film got into the London Film Festival, um, I had this bright idea, oh my God, I could invite Jarvis Cocker, who... Um, who's like one of my favorite musicians in the world. And then I had this tiny idea, oh man, I could make a film about pulp. And you know, and I think they'd like love story. And so I really naively, you know, write, wrote an email. I got my girlfriend to check it. And she thought, you know, oh, Florian, let, let, let him do his little thing. And anyway, um, yeah, um, Jarvis came. We started making a film. Um, his last, Pulp's last concert was in six weeks and we didn't have enough time to get funding, but I met a great producer who took the risk of bankrolling the concert shoot on its credit card. And yeah, and so we, again, it was like this big risk just to get the film made. And, um, and last year I was, um, I, I was really lucky, I was um, asked by Madman if I wanted to direct a documentary about Spookers, which is like a scare park um, king seat, and, and make it with the New Zealand Film Commission. And it was like a sort of project I just couldn't turn down. And I went to Spookers. I wasn't sure. I went to Spookers. I was like, oh, my God, this is like being handed this incredible thing on a plate. But my, my problem was that um, at Warwick Broadhead's funeral, who's a real dear friend of mine, I had an idea for a film that I really, really wanted to make, a love story, um, a drama um, set up north. And just in my heart, I just knew I had to make this film. And it was the most important thing in my life. But then I couldn't say no to Spookers. So um, then did a bit more research and I learned that the Film Commission have this thing which I just learned about. It's called a pause clause. And it's basically when you get 
to the film to what you think is a good stage, just before you have a test screening, you're not allowed to touch the film for one month. And the idea is that the filmmakers get some fresh perspective and they can um, come back you know, with new perspective on the project. So I had this idea that when we have this pause clause in April, I can go and shoot, um, shoot, shoot a feature film up north you know, <laughs> while we're having that. And yeah, and I, and I really believed in it. And, and Spookers was a lot of fun to make, and, but got closer to the time. And it was really a lot more time involving than I thought. And, and I was realizing I, I didn't have as much time to do as much prep as I wanted. But then when we shot Love Story in New York, sometimes I'd just jump on Google Earth in the morning, find a location, and we'd turn up in a taxi and we'd shoot. And it, you know, we always went well. Um, and started, I got a really great s small team together. Um, but then Peter, my collaborator, Peter Donahue, he sort of strongly advised me against doing it. He thought I was taking on too much and that both films might suffer. And then my parents as well thought I was, you know, putting too much on my plate. And then um, Lisa and Christina from the Film Commission really caringly as well sort of advised me that I could be compromising both films if I tried to do this crazy thing. But the more people were telling me that you, you can't do it, you shouldn't do it, the more I just really wanted to make it, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and I kind of had to. Um, and yeah, and, and my, so with a very small team who really believe in the film because it's a really beautiful, strong idea and it's, it's like, Art, like we wanted to make art and this idea was perfect and yeah we went up north and there were um there were a, a lot of wild cards things i was relying on sort of to go right to pull this thing off it was a local and international cast you know small but ambitious tricky locations and after a week um with i just realized um it's not possible to get this whole film made and um, yeah, just too many of those wild cards weren't working out, and and it was like the hardest decisions I, decision I've ever made in the film. I had to like say to everyone, look, um, we we can't we're, in a week we're going to stop filming because and, and I'd self funded it myself as well, and and that was really challenging. So um, we decided that we're going to spend one more week filming, and we're going to shoot material for a proof of concept or a teaser. And then we're going to try and make the film with proper support and go back. Um, yeah, so that, so that was sort of the first time for me, like when I decided to do it, I knew I was taking a big risk and I knew there's a good chance it's not going to work out. And, and then I sort of had to live up to that kind of thing. And so I'm, I'm just trying to think what, what's, a, what's a positive message to tell you guys? Because <laughs> I want to encourage risk. But um, the one thing I really... What thought was work with people that you love and I always try to do this but in this situation when the filming got really challenging like my team was so amazing and they just they just blew my mind and they really they were fighters and um and the footage that we got and the performances is like I think for me the strongest stuff I've ever filmed and we're going to go back next year to keep making it but I just thought you know if you work with people you know, and you're tight, that's so, so, so important. Um, yeah, and what else did I learn? Um, you can't regret things that you once wanted. And the other thing I thought about was to make, to make art, you've got to persevere. Like, that's a big part of making art is 
sticking with it. And, you know, and when people watch a film in the cinema, they don't know how hard it was if it was hard. <laughs> um, yeah, and, and, and the girl um, in the subway station, uh, when Love Story played in London, I got an email. Um, oh, that's right. It was, um, she gave me the idea in the film to have this character who's trying to find a woman in New York, like a needle in a haystack. Like, so I kind of used that for Love Story. And then when the film played in the London Festival, she turned up. She'd heard about it. And, and I saw her again. <laughs> so that was like a nice example of just, you know, taking a risk and going up and chatting to someone on the street. Yeah. So cool. That's it. <laughs> Um, that was awesome. Um, my name's Jackie Van Beek, and yeah, as per the introduction, I've made seven short films. I made six independently, and I got one Fresh Shorts um, fund through the Film Commission. And I'm now working on my first feature film, The Inland Road, um, which is in post-production. We shot it in Arrowtown last year, and it was a low-budget um, Film Commission-funded film. Um, I also work as an actor. Um, and a, a little bit more about me. Um, so <laughs> I do love and hate being in the spotlight all at once. Um, uh, yeah, so I, 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 I loved the creative arts, like, just immediately as a small child. And I'd go to school and, you know, I don't know if you remember those journals that sometimes had the plays in, like sweet porridge and things, if you grew up in the 80s. And I'd take them home and I'd count out every single word for every single role. And I'd, like, tally them all up on my former chart. And then I'd go back to school the next day and pitch so strongly for the part that had the most words. Because <laughs> uh, I wanted to be, like, the, a, a really full contributor. And it was always the narrator. It was always the narrator, in hindsight, the most boring role. But um, I also used to um, alphabeticalize my clothes. And, and before leaving for school every morning, I had to make sure that my coat hangers were like equidistant apart in the wardrobe before I'd go to school. So somehow I got through primary school. And then as about a 12 or 13-year-old, I was walking to school one day and I checked my watch, which I did about 55,000 times a day. And I thought, I'm going to take my watch off. And I took it off, and I've never worn a watch since. And sometimes I am late for meetings, but it was, um, it was, a, it was a really at the beginning of a kind of letting go process, um, which I think you, you kind of need to let go if you want to be a creative person and, and make good work. And so, but I didn't really learn as a kind of creative person to really let go until my early 20s. Um, and I was lucky enough to do a few small projects with Christian Penny, who's a theatre maker. He teaches down at Toy Fakati, and, and him and I worked a lot, uh, quite intensively, for maybe a year or so together um, on theatre projects. And he comes from that kind of Lecoq school. I don't know if people are familiar. He studied with um, yeah, Philippe Gollier and John Bolton teaches the same sort of thing. And so we'd spend hours in the rehearsal room, like literally hours over, over weeks, where he'd send me off stage just as an exercise, and he'd say, okay, Jackie, come, come on stage. I don't want you to think about what you're going to do. I just want you to come on, just kind of read the room, feel the vibe, and just do something. You know, it's all about being kind of spontaneous and, and truly in the moment. And so I'd go off stage, and, and I'd come back on, and um, he'd go, no, 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 no. You, I can tell you've planned something. So he'd send me off again, and I'd come back on. He'd go, no, I can tell, Jackie, you've gone off there, and for that split second, you've tried to think of a plan. I'd come back on, 
They go, get no, 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 no. <laughs> so constantly walking off stage and then trying to walk back on before I had time to think about anything. And then I'd come on, and, and then finally on like week two, I'd, I'd just try something, and it would be awful, like awful. He'd go, that's great, go off again, go off again. I'd come back on, I'd try something, it'd be even worse, you know. But it was so empowering to learn to fail constantly. And what happened over that year is I'd fail so much. You know, I'd risk that thing of just walking out on stage and not knowing anything and reading the room and looking at the audience and trying to feel what's right for this moment and then doing something. And on the occasional time that it works, you know, it was the most beautiful, empowering feeling. And it was so valuable um, for me to learn to fail and not want to commit suicide afterwards, you know? And so now I I really just see it as an essential part of my creative work is trying stuff and failing, taking risks and failing. And sometimes you get it right, you know, and you do tend to get it right more and more as you go on and you kind of start to back yourself. But um, I took this this kind of training really into my directing work. I only started directing films uh, when I was 30. Um, but I started, when I started writing short films, I wrote a lot of spontaneous elements into them t- in order to keep this thing alive. And my first short film starred two indigenous boys um, that I met up in Alice Springs when I was teaching a clown workshop. And that was absolute chaos. And I, I really fell in love with filmmaking through, through those boys. Jesse was 10 and Rodney was eight and he couldn't speak English and he was partially deaf as well. And they were very naughty. They'd run away from set all the time and we'd have to go and find them and we could only find them through the radio mics. Um, <laughs> they were so naughty. And I, we'd find them in like the video store. We found Rodney up a tree down the river one day and stuff, just we'd li- like, listening to the sounds. Like we'd hear water and... It was amazing, and I just, I just thought, this, I love filmmaking, I love it, because uh, then anyway, then I went to London, made a second short film with a bunch of kids I met on an estate in Hackney, third short film I made back in Australia, starring a girl with special needs, a dog and a snake, um, fourth short film I made with 40 children with autism, we adapted a fairy story, absolute chaos, and, and I realised what I really loved and what was probably my strength as a director um, was you know, doing a bit of planning, obviously, but really kind of being in the moment and taking that risk and going, what's in front of me? And how can I guide and shape these elements into something that will make a great story and and make them shine as actors? Um, And so, of course, when I got the opportunity to make a feature film, you know, all the fun and games of the short films that I'd self-funded, it was suddenly like, oh, um, the risk felt a lot bigger. You know, I'm able to cajole kids along for three or four days, you know? But a five-week shoot, um, you know, there's more money. I had to lead a bigger team. There's investors. But I just thought, I've got to, I've got to play to my strengths. And I, I have a long um, history in theatre, theatre making. So I thought, I'll get them in the rehearsal room because that's a really safe and productive environment for me. So I, I got a two-week rehearsal with five actors um, just before we went into production. And I'd written, the, the lead role was for a 17-year-old. And then... There are four supporting cast, three people in their 30s, and one six-year-old. So I cast three amazing actors, and I cast two non-actors in the younger roles, and I got them all in the room. And I thought, and yeah, I thought I've got to take another risk here. I've been working on this script for seven years, like pouring my energy and my love and my care into it. And I thought, I've got to, write, I've got to rewrite the bloody thing in two weeks. Um, not the story and the structure, it had all been signed off, but... It felt really important for me to over, overhaul all of the dialogue, especially for the non-actors, because it was very important to me that it, 
they weren't saying my words, but they were saying something that sounded natural. So we went into, um, I think the, the experienced actors were a little bit alarmed um, <laughs> when they turned up and they had script notes and all that stuff. And I told them not to prepare anything, but they had ignored me. Um, and I said, I don't want to look at the scripts these two weeks. I don't want to rehearse, I don't want to rehearse the, the script. I want, to, I want to go into exercises and improvisations for two weeks. I want to ask questions. I don't want to answer them. And so, you know, the actors did look alarmed. The non-actors looked fine. They'd never done it before. It's probably very normal. But we did... Um, the actors were great. They came on board. It took a couple of days of, of making sure that they trusted me still. Um, and we did a lot of improvisations. I'd record them on my phone and I'd rewrite them, rewrite the script each night. I'd go back and rewrite the script, send out all the new pages to everyone. And um, But I think the biggest risk that I, I, probably that we all face, and certainly for us women, um, is that thing you've got to, like, you've got to take a punt on yourself. You know, and that question comes to you, um, and it's usually something along the lines of, "Do I have what it takes to pull this off?" And it comes to you in many different times, like sometimes at a very critical time when there's a whole a whole bunch of people staring at me, waiting for me to make a decision. But sometimes it'll just come to me when someone says, "Do you want the red cushion or the orange cushion, Jackie?" And you know, it can just come to you, and it can be crippling because it's self-doubt, you know. Um, but I really strongly believe, and I really, you know, uh, do this myself, I, I think we have to believe in ourselves because otherwise no one else will. How can you lead a team if you don't believe in your own vision and believe in your own skills? So, you know, but you, <laughs> that's not a constant feeling, of course. Um, and so, yeah, so, so getting this opportunity to make a feature film, I thought I'd, I'd, I'm going to talk to a lot of people that know more about making feature films than I do. So I talked to Aman Ballantyne, who'd made a feature, um, Curtis and Sophie, who'd made a feature. Uh, I had Philippa Campbell in my team. I talked to Gaylene Preston. I got a phone call with Jane Campion, an email with Miranda Harcourt. I talked to Breda McVeigh. And I think the most kind of tangible, they were all wonderful and really gave me lots of advice, but the most kind of tangible help was um, something that Brita said in a, in a session I had with her. And she said, Jackie, I know you well enough to know that when you get nervous, you start speaking loudly and really fast and kind of barking. <laughs> and I agreed with her, I agreed with her. Um, and she really encouraged me that if I got nervous on the shoot or in the rehearsal room or with investors or with anything, she said, really try to resist trying to prove to people that you're a leader and that you know what you're doing and that you're a strong leader who always has an answer. And she really encouraged me to just, if I got stuck, just to take a moment and to breathe and to be a bit more feminine, I guess, and just try and work it out. And, and it did happen a couple of times on set, you know, doing a scene, got a bit stuck, the actors were looking a bit miserable, a bit confused, I wasn't getting, I knew it wasn't good enough. And, um, and I'd have 30 people looking at me wanting to go on lunch. And I, and I was brave enough, I remembered what Brita said, and I was brave enough to kind of, you know, look at them and, and wink at my AD nervously and, um, and say, hey, I don't know what to do, but um, I'm going to figure it out, but I'm going to keep my actors, and I want all of you guys to go outside and eat boujard mix, and, um, and I'm going to send my AD to tell you when you're allowed to come back in the room. And it was great, and once everyone had gone and the pressure was off and I had a moment and I remembered my theatre skills... We, you know, we had fixed the problem. So, so yeah, I felt really proud of um, taking that risk, I guess, on being a leader 
that didn't always, wasn't always trying to prove to people that I knew all the answers. And I guess I risked, I guess I risked kind of people losing faith in me and, and having a huge mutiny on my hands. But, but it never happened, and it all worked well. Oh, in that, on that very positive note. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I'm just going to spend 10 minutes adjusting this. Um, okay, sweet. So I'm just going to set my timer because um, otherwise this is going to be the orator part two. Okay. Um. <laughs> um, what did I write? Oh, yeah, there it is. Okay, uh, so playing with risk, um, just to guess, carry on with, um, I guess, similar to what uh, my fellow speakers have uh, talked about, but um, carrying on in terms of, I guess, different stages of uh, production. So for my topic, when they said, oh, look, can you do something along the lines of uh, playing with risk? What does it mean to you? I said, oh, should I spend $100,000 of my own money to make my first feature film when I don't know how I'm going to distribute it? Um, no, don't do that. <laughs> Thank you, Dan. That's me. <laughs> um, no, these tickets are really expensive, so I'll give you some knowledge. Um, so... <laughs> Talofalava, my name is Stallone Waiaunga Yuasa. I am the writer, director, and one of the producers of Three Wise Cousins. Also the camera operator. I'll say, I won't say cinematographer because you need to know how to use um, like a light meter. Um, <laughs> for those who don't know what Three Wise Cousins is, it's, in a nutshell, it's a uh, New Zealand Samoan comedy about um, a guy called Adam. I'll just play the trailer in case you haven't seen it. And um, He's a New Zealand-born Samoan guy in his 20s, and he falls for Mary, uh, who has a particular type and that she only wants to go out with a real island guy. So Adam travels to Samoa to learn from his cousins about how to be a real island guy and hopefully uh, impress uh, Mary. And so because this is a comedy, funny things happen during the story. Um, so for my address today, it's going to be very specific. Um, you know, I'll talk about a very small part of the three wise cousins journey, basically the part that involves money. Um, so I think one of the, and I think that's one of the main reasons why I guess the Three Wise Cousins story stands out, especially in terms of uh, an industry context, um, because of what this film achieved at the box office. Uh, for me personally, it's a bit more than that. Uh, there's a lot more stories in terms of where this film sits within the Pacific Island community, um, has a lot of value and a lot of, um, for those who've seen it will realize that it's a strong morality tale and it's now a point of reference for parents to tell off their children. Um, saying, oh, this is how hard life was for me. And they're like, oh, no, you were born here. Um, <laughs> so. Mm, oh, that's the, there we go. So um, in terms of New Zealand box office, what made Three Wise Cousins stand out is that uh, in New Zealand, we made $970,000. Uh, Australia, about 500K. And US, that's the US mainland, um, above 600K. Um, money's still coming in, which is good. Um, so in terms of box office, yes, I guess you could say it was definitely a success. Um, and in all these territories, we self-distributed the film. Um, when it comes to playing with risk, I'd say that, you know, it was a very expensive risk. And just to give a little context, 
Um, with 300, well, Three Wise Cousins, I didn't really have 100K to start with, technically. Um, I thought... <laughs> um, I'm just really good at making headlines. Um, I, had, I, I really thought I could make this feature film on 30K. And then we got to Samoa, and after two days, I was like, oh, no, I need to use my contingency money. And then that ran out. Um, so, you know, making films overseas is really expensive. Um, especially in Samoa, where all of a sudden um, everyone's related to you. Um, so after filming Samoa, after about 10 days, we had about 80% of the film done. But we came back to New Zealand, and I had to go back to work um, to make more money, and because I forgot to budget for post-production. <laughs> so um, I'm like, oh, yeah, color grading, that thing. Um, in terms of making the film, this here is my cast and crew. So if you've ever done 48-hour film festival, oh, filmmaking competition, that's basically what our crew was. That's how we rolled. Um, that's, um, yeah, that's my cast and crew, and there was only like four of us technically, and my parents came over and they cooked and cleaned for us uh, for about two weeks, and my uncle there in the red shirt, he's in the film. I don't think he even knew he was in the film. Um, <laughs> um, he was also our security because, yeah, uncle, um, have some free money. Um, I don't recommend this approach to making your feature film unless your crew is really on that ninja level. And uh, with myself, there's Jack Wurren in the front there, who's my editor and also camera assist. Um, he, he is an absolute Spartan. He was basically my camera assist during the day and cut at night. So along the way, we knew exactly what we had. Um, and for some reason, he doesn't need to sleep, which is good for me. Um, so, um, and also uh, at the back there is David Green, um, the tallest Balangi guy in Samoa at the time. Um, so, and he was basically everything. It just, as Florian said, having a crew that is your family, is your team that will fight for you, not just say yes to you all the time. Um, I mean, my editor goes to me halfway through, look, you need to work on your blocking. Right now, it's really boring. And, uh, you know, and I was like, oh, it's sweet as. And then I just decided, okay, actors, move around. Move around. <laughs> <laughs> and then my editor just rolls his eyes. Okay. So um, we started filming in October 2014. Uh, in March 2015, we released our first look trailer on our Facebook page. Um, we hadn't finished editing, but we wanted to check that we were on the right track. And so within 24 hours, we had about 100,000 views. And we were like, oh, okay, um, I guess this works. Uh, we'll keep finishing it. Um, so by se December 2015, we had a finished film. Uh, Three Wise Cousins was locked in, and now I'm looking to get it into cinemas. So this is basically what the bulk of my talk is, despite that long introduction. Um, so plan A was simple. You know, I would just take the film to the cinema <laughs> and ask, hey, do you want to play it? Um, no film festivals. Um, everyone, every time I talked to people, they were like, oh, are you going to any festivals? But it just never was in the plan because this is plan A. Um, and there were no distributors. I was, gonna, I was gonna do it myself. I wanted to learn what the process was, and I thought Three Wise Cousins is the best way to learn. And I knew who my target audience was, and I knew it from the start. I even knew which cinema it was gonna play at, Monaco. Um, I had an idea of what, <laughs> you know, I knew, I knew what worked for my film, but at the same time, I needed a plan B. So if the exhibitor said, nah, um, no, we don't want to really show your film, um, we were going to hire out cinemas ourselves and sell tickets ourselves. So we had a long list of cinemas here in New Zealand and Australia because uh, dreaming is cool. Uh, we were looking at different ticketing options, and it would be really labor-intensive, but the most difficult of all, uh, the most difficult part was that it would be really hard to teach our audience 
um, how to use a completely new system. If you think about how hard and how much work goes in just showing up the movies, it was going to be a lot more work to say, hey, do you have a credit card? Hey, can you book this ticket? Can you bring a copy of it to the cinema? And so while that wasn't ideal, it was going to be, I guess, we were going to use it as an opportunity to show that, hey, look, community, we made a film, and it's a good film. Come and see it. And it was going to be, I guess, just a stepping stone. But um, fortunately, it turned out a lot better than that. Uh, plan C, there was no plan C. Um, we approached one of the two main exhibitors here in New Zealand. Um, they watched the film, and they were like, oh, it's good, it has some moments, but um, it's a no from us. Basically, we don't think this film will find, um, or find it hard to find an audience. And, uh, and that was understandable, despite the outcome suggesting otherwise, and they made lots of money. Um, the idea of a Samoan audience, a Pacific audience slash market being significant enough within a box office context was just a little bit too much to imagine within a business sense. Um, and that's understandable. There's no precedent for it. And you, you know, I don't blame them. You know, you don't know what you don't know. Um, the closest two films that we had an example was The Orator and Sione's Wedding. But The Orator, you know, and Sione's, you know, had funding and experience behind it. So an exhibitor can sort of have more trust in the team behind it. We were completely first-timers and, I mean, when we went to the meeting, I had jandals on. Um, Sionez had mainstream appeal, and I think the orator felt more, fell more into a sort of an art house, uh, I guess, drama stream. And so Three Wise Cousins didn't fit into that mold or model. Um, in addition to this, and I think this is really important for us, um, another obstacle that for the exhibitor to say no, and uh, or, um, on another obstacle for them not to say, not to take on the film, and it never crossed my mind, but it was a huge wake-up call and a reminder that once we cross into this realm of distribution, it's straight business, and you need to bring your business game. Um, what made the exhibitors nervous and less receptive to the idea of a self-funded, self-distributed, first-time filmmakers um, was the lack of a commercially successful precedent, which is a flash way of saying um, it hasn't been done before, and the times it did happen, it did not work. Um, I won't say which New Zealand films the exhibitors were holding up as an examples. I think if you're serious about this, you'll find out for yourself. Um, go do your research, uh, get off your ass and do some work. Um, it's important to score yourself up on what's happening in the market. When um, the exhibitors told us the names of these films, we are like, what? <laughs> We've never heard of them. And he goes, exactly. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, um, I would say now, Three Wise Cousins, I mean at the risk of sounding arrogant, the, the door's a little bit more open. The idea that a self-funded, self-distributed film could make it in New Zealand um, is a lot more palatable, <laughs> flash word, um, to uh, exhibitors. But at the time, yeah, we didn't expect that. Um, it didn't really matter how good the film was to them, how they saw it, or how many Facebook likes or views we had. Um, it was just a straight business no. Uh, so at this point, we decided uh, to prepare for plan B. But the second exhibitor, Hoyts, shout out to Mark, film manager there, um, said, hey, look, I watched the film, has some moments, don't really get it. Um, I like it. I, I know I can't survive in Samoa based on what I've seen in this film. Um, <laughs> would I personally buy a ticket to it? Um, no. But I know, and I have a feeling there will be someone out there who is willing to, to buy a ticket. And we're like, cool, cool, yep, that's, that's, um, we can find those people. Um, just give us a few sessions to prove that there's an audience uh, gives just two or three. He goes, cool, I'll um, give you Thursday, Friday, Saturday, one session each day. Um, and I said, cool, can you give us the, open up the sales two weeks before the release date? Um, and then that way you can monitor it and then adjust accordingly. And so he goes, yep, see, we can do that. Um, so he opened it up. 
we posted on our Facebook. Within three hours, we get a call from Mark. He goes, oh, look, we're, yeah, it's doing really well. We're going to uh, open up a few more sessions, open up the weekend. Um, and then at the end of the day, he goes, oh, look, we're going to give you the whole week. Basically, it just sold like crazy. The following day, the other exhibitor that said no said, hey, look, um, we've managed to find some, <laughs> some space in our schedule <laughs> for your film. Um, so obviously, they, they always watch each other. Um, and so uh, yeah, they, they took on the film and made lots of money. So from there, we continued to expand throughout New Zealand and uh, eventually into Australia and uh, the US mainland, all still doing it ourselves. Uh, marketing outside of Facebook was minimal um, because we didn't think we would last that long. We really didn't. We were, for the last nine months, we've been going week by week. Um, and I didn't want to get... Uh, I didn't re like, we had no posters in cinemas. We didn't even have a trailer in the cinema. Um, all the things that you're supposed to do, we struggled to do because it's amateur hour. And... Um, <laughs> It was a case, you know, it was just a case of being stretched um, too thin. But it was a really good learning experience. So, um, things I wish I knew at the time. Um, I think this is practical if you're looking at distribution and things that I just didn't know of. Virtual print fee um, is a fee you pay for each cinema location your film plays in. Uh, there are variations in cost depending on the situation. Um, lots of paperwork to read through. Um, and just as a heads up, if you look, you're looking at about seven to $800 each. Uh, so keep in mind, if your film only makes $1,000 in one location and you only get 30% of that $1,000, um, then you've basically paid for film, paid people to watch your film. Um, yeah, money is, uh, money is real. Um, posters, um, the proper double-sided ones, they're sort of transparent, they're really expensive, so I didn't buy those. Um, dates and timings are essential. That was one of the big, uh, big things that the exhibitors said, hey, look, you've got to choose the timing right. If you ask for a date that's too packed, we're not going to give it to you. Um, but I really believed in my film. When I first talked to Hoyt, I said, can, you, can I open the film on the weekend that Star Wars The Force Awakens <laughs> opens? Um, and he did really well not to laugh. Um, how much money you get? Cool. What you, ne uh, you negotiate your percentage with the individual exhibitors. So I won't say what ours was, and there are a lot of different ways of structuring this, but you're lucky to get 40%. Um, so when he offered um, the certain percentage, I said, oh, yes, please. Um, how do I get my money? I'd like to shout out to Michael here. Michael from Transmission was uh, one of the, f the only distributor I talked to who gave me, he was very kind enough to give me some advice and just the leg, uh, in terms of logistics and legwork, um, you invoice the cinema. So at the end of, this, at the, end of the week, uh, the box office number comes out, you work out your percentage from that and send them the invoice and then they put the money in your bank account if there's any. Um, what else is there? So why did I risk... So why did I risk all that money? Well, for me personally, I wanted to see if I and my team could actually make a feature film. Uh, to see if we had the requisite skill set to sort of uh, to make that to make that jump. Secondly, I wanted to see if as if being a filmmaker was really what I wanted to do. Um, I think sometimes I've been wanting to do it for so long that it's just become habit rather than an actual passion. And so I said, look, you know, I don't, I can't really say I want to be. If, uh, I enjoy being a filmmaker if I haven't made a film yet. So now that I have made one, yeah, I really do enjoy it, and I I, I get it because. I suck at everything else. Um, uh, I also made it and I risked all that money because I believed it would make money back. And I think that's an important thing if you're trying to really chase that commercial uh, angle. I really believed in Three Wise Cousins. Um, I knew my target audience. I knew the numbers. I went to the census. 260,000 islanders in New Zealand. Most of them live in Auckland. If even 
20% of them showed up, um, then I knew that, well, um, that's a lot of popcorn. Um, also, um, I looked at the orators' numbers, and I used that as a benchmark. They made about 770K. Uh, mpda.org.nz, that's the Motion Picture Distributors Association, um, they release a box office report every week, um, and I study that religiously. Um, because you need to know, I guess you need to have your business game on and you need to know what's happening out there and why, why it made so much money or didn't make money. Um, also, I had a post-film fail contingency, meaning um, if it all failed, if the film didn't do well, I knew, I, had, I, I knew where I would go back to work. You know, I knew how to deal with it emotionally, uh, basically food, um, um, psychologically and commercially. So I knew I had an exit strategy. Also, I spent 100K because regret would cost a lot more. You know, I wanted to know, I didn't want to sort of 10 years from now look back and go, oh, I wish I'd done that film. So moving on from here, um, Three Wise Cousins has done well, and I guess the real challenge for me is to see if I make the next film, will I be willing to risk a million dollars? Not jokes. <laughs> um, so, yeah, playing with risk, um, yeah, I recommend it. Play with it, and just keep what doesn't play back at you. Cool, thank you. Uh, thanks, you wonderful speakers. That was brilliant. And a big thanks again to the random group for presenting this session. Have a wonderful day.
Sunday morning. Good morning, everyone. My name is Max Curry. I'm a writer-director, and um, I'm super excited to be here today with Kate Shortland and Tony Kravitz. Um, I'm going to get into their sort of bio and work shortly, but we've still got people arriving, so we're actually going to kick off for three minutes with a really short surprise for these guys. They don't know that it's coming, but it's going to be okay. We're just going to do the, the Proust questionnaire really quickly. Oh. So first answer, best answer. Uh, Kate, your favorite virtue? Uh, honesty. Honesty, nice. Tony, your favorite qualities in a man? Mm. Humor. Humor, nice. Uh, Kate, your favorite qualities in a woman? Uh, warmth. Yeah. Um, Tony, what's your, what would you des describe as your chief characteristic? Procrastinate. That's <laughs> <laughs> true. Kate, your chief characteristic? Ah, uh, neuroses. Neuroses. <laughs> yeah, that's what you said yesterday. Like, if, if all your work was like directly about you, it would be like all about a neurotic woman. Yeah. yeah. Um, Tony, what do you what do you appreciate most in your friends? Honesty. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, oh, Kate, what's your main fault? Do you think? Ah. Uh, Oh, God. Taking things to heart. Yeah. It's a good thing and a bad thing, I would say. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And Tony, what do you think your, your main fault is? Uh, Self-criticism. Yeah, yeah. Um, Kate, what's your favourite pastime? Uh, Kim, at the moment, Kim Kardashian's <laughs> ass. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. <laughs> Tony? Favourite pastime? Yeah. Oh, it's just really boring ones. You can't, can't beat, beat that. No, it's a, don't even try. What's what, like reading? Reading, yeah. Um, Kate, what's your idea of happiness? My family. Yeah, Tony, what's your idea of misery? Don't say the same answer. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, no family. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, Tony, what's oh, if, if not yourself, who would you like to be? Me first? Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Can't okay. answer that. Yeah. Can you guys answer that? That's a hard question. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah, because then my wife would be obsessed with me. <laughs> uh, Kate, your favourite heroine in fiction? Um, I like Madame Bovary. Yeah. Okay, Tony, your favourite hero in fiction? Travis Bickle. Travis Bickle. <laughs> You're going to pull out a gun. Yeah. Um, if these questions keep going. Yeah, yeah, so... so um, <laughs> Just joking. <laughs> Kate, your favourite real-life hero or heroes? Um, at the moment, I really like... I'm enjoying what Stan Grant is doing in Australia. He's an Indigenous journalist and spokesperson. Yeah, fantastic. Um, Tony... Do you have a favourite motto? That's a, yeah. He does. Oh, really? <laughs> I do. <laughs> if it doesn't kill you, it'll make you stronger. Oh, that's a good one. <laughs> nice. <laughs> I forgot that one. Okay, and guys, so Tony, first, what's your current state of mind? Intense anxiety. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Kate? 
Ah, uh, joy. <laughs> okay, so I'm, maybe that backfired. I don't know, it was just like, I thought it would like loosen us up, but uh, yeah, I'm just feeling like a little bit anxious, so let's roll into this. Um, the, I mean, the, the wonderful thing about interviewing you guys, and also kind of the problem, the thing I found difficult, is that there's just so much work, okay? Like, I don't know if you guys have gone onto IMDb and looked at the credits that are in this room, um, but I mean, you, you span cinema, documentary, and television. Um, I, I mean, I'm going to call you the power couple of Australian TV. Um, shaking, shaking your heads. Uh, so just, we're going to review really quickly um, who, we, who we have in the room. Uh, so Kate debuted with her, her feature Somersault, um, and it premiered at On Certain Regard in Cannes. Um, and won in Australia 13 of its 15 nominations at the Australian Film Institute Awards. That's how you do a debut, I think. Um, and more in keeping with today's topic, uh, as a TV writer, she's written on The Kettering Incident, um, The Devil's Playground, Deadline Gallipoli, and The Slap. Um, many more shows, but um, apart from Deadline Gallipoli, we're going to be looking at some excerpts from, from those later today. Um, and as a TV director, Kate's credits include um, episodes of The Secret Lives of Us and the miniseries Silence. Um, Tony uh, came to attention with his um, 52 minute drama, The Jew Boy. Um, and yeah, that also won a slew of awards. It was also an uncertain regard at Cannes. Um, he's won awards for his documentary, The Tall Man. Um, and uh, Tony's gone on to direct a lot of television, uh, some of which Kate has written. So similar credits here, The Devil's Playground, um, and then A Place to Call Home, The Surgeon, City Homicide, All Saints, Ready for This. Um, you guys have what I would say would be a dream career. Um, and, the, and what's come to mind straight away, and I want to ask you about off, off the cuff, is the fluidity. So you're really moving between all these different worlds. Um, is that unusual in Australia, or is that becoming the norm? I think it's, it's funny when you talk about it because if you look through film history, there's so many filmmakers who've done it from the beginning of silent film. So I don't think it's that unusual. I think it's just um, we've been lucky, well, just talking for myself, to get work in different fields. But I love making film and I love working with the medium. So it kind of doesn't matter which one I'm working on. They all have their... You know, they have their differences when you're working on it, but it's just the love of actually telling stories and oh. connecting. Nice. Um, today I wanted to start by talking about your career, so, so a little bit, and then getting into the television production environment in Australia, because there's just so, so many amazing shows coming out of it. And then the second half, we'll look at process and, and show some of your work. So in terms of your career, uh, the first time you got paid for it, Kate, you know, when was the first time you actually got paid for writing television? The slap. Oh. <coughs> so, um, Tony Ayres and Amanda Higgs approached me from um, Matchbox and asked if I'd like to write. And I was really flattered because I'd never been asked just to be a writer and didn't consider myself a writer. And then that experience was so rigorous and joyous um, was my first time in a writing room yeah. um, that I became quite addicted to it. Fantastic. Yeah. 
And how do you think that happened? Like, so, someone came and knocked on your door. Were you putting yourself out there at the time? Um, I'd worked. I knew Tony Ayres from when I was about 13 years old because he used to come in, he went to art school in Canberra and I used to work in a, my sister's cafe. <clears throat> and he was this really cool, gay, Asian-Australian printmaker. <laughs> and um, I was this, you know, teenager that just thought he, and he was really punk, I just thought he was great. And I'd worked with Amanda on um, Secret Life of Us. Mm -hmm. So, in a funny way, Tony was a bit, he's a bit familiar. Oh. He's, um, my sister was with his brother when he passed away. Oh. There's um, all different connections that we have that go beyond filmmaking. And so just because I know there's a lot of people in the room that are emerging or want to get their first TV writing gig, so that was more a case of you know, a long-standing relationship. And did he just say to you one day, do you want to come into the writer's room? Yeah, or did do you, you have wanna, to say? Do you want to write? Yeah, okay, nice. And the thing about the slap was it because it's all different characters and they just assigned the characters to people. Uh -huh. And that was kind of great too. So, t Tony, the, the, mm -hmm. the first time you got paid for a directing gig, you know, that, that step up, when did that happen? How did it happen? It was Dubai. Yeah. Okay. And before that, it was the real, which I'm sure a lot of you have experienced, that kind of chicken and egg thing where you're going, I was really trying to get into TV, yeah. but I'd only made short films that were self-funded oh. and was like, how do we know you can direct 50 yeah. minutes? You know, it was so, by, by getting Dubai, which was part of a series they were funded at the time, giving people money to make 52-minute films as a stepping stone. Oh. Getting that was like a huge shift. Right, and it's, I mean, it's, now it seems very clear that you're at a point in your careers where work is, is coming to you and you're getting to pick and choose. But if, you know, if we do just kind of rewind the clock a little bit mm. to that, that period where you're trying to break in, what were, you, what were you doing? Like in terms of, were you ringing around or did you just focus on the work you know, itself? I worked a lot. I started as a runner, so I worked a lot in the industry and right. kind of learnt on the job yeah. and studied at film school afterwards. But I just kind of retreated into myself, I suppose, and started making short films. Oh. And two of the short films, one was five minutes, one was eight minutes, took me at least a year to make. Oh. And they were on film at the time, so I was working as a runner and I'd get bits of offcuts of film from the production companies. Oh. And that's why the one film, Unit 52, ended up being black and white because it was like 15 different types of stock, which would have looked really shit if it had stayed in colour. And um, it was a, 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 a real ode to film noir. It was based on an Andre Kertész, who's a, I think Hungarian photographer. It was a beautiful photograph of a man through a frosted glass window on a balcony. And, um, I use that as a postcard. This guy gets that as a postcard and becomes obsessed with his neighbour. Um, and that, which took a year and a half, ended up getting into director's fortnight at Cannes. Wow, nice. And that, I still remember the facts coming through oh, yeah. and not believing the facts yeah. and going, someone's playing a joke on me. <laughs> but that kind of, that really shifted things. So just talk a little bit about that shift then. So what, what, what changed? Well, what changed is that when I started going, it was called the Australian Film Commission at the time. Mm. You know, well, firstly, I went to Cannes and then I met the people from the Australian Film Commission who I'd been trying to just get scripts in front of and it just wasn't, you know, you'd just be getting letters back yeah, saying, yeah. oh, sorry, 
yeah, sort of that kept kind of, at a distance. Yeah. Yeah. So that it just kind of opened the door in that way and was, what else have you got? And, yeah. and so to, the, to the, the writers and directors, the aspiring writers and directors in the room, what's, what's some advice and what are some of the, the mistakes, <laughs> now that you're kind of looking, looking back at people emerging through the ranks, what are some of the mistakes that you're seeing they're making or what are some of the mistakes you wish that, that you know, they didn't make? I think never make anything where you try to make it for somebody else or you're trying to do something with it to impress anybody else, which we all kind of know. Always make something that you just can't stop yourself from making. I have to do this. I have to vomit this out because if I don't, I'm going to be an unhappy person. And I think if people can see inside you through your work, if you are vulnerable and you reveal yourself in your work, people are always going to be interested, even if it's not a completely successful work of art. There's always something really fascinating about people that are allowed inside you. So I, don't, I, don't, I think the whole idea of career is, I mean, <clears throat> we're lucky because we work, but we both have never done anything for our career. Um, we've done stuff to pay the bills, but the work we made, especially the individual work we made, was always personal. Yeah, thanks. And Tony, you know, in, in terms of... Well, I think, similar, I think it's a kind of thing, like there's so much content out there, yeah. much more than there used to be, and it's just what we're all looking for is something that's unique. Yeah. And I think that can be both stressful because you're trying to work out what's unique when you're looking outside of yourself. Yeah. But it was the more and more, and a Unit 52 was getting towards there and the other short films I did, but mainly it was Jew Boy where I really found, like it was the most personal. Yeah. And it was kind of that really old adage of like, write what you know. Yeah. And even though Jew Boy is a lot of, um, it's kind of extrapolated from what I know and who I am, it was, you know, the, the most personal, and that actually, you know, ended up, was just amazing doing something that was so personal about a religious Jew and then ending up at a film festival in South Korea uh. where young South Korean film students were saying it's their story. Wow. You know, wow. the, just the kind of universality that comes from, the more specific you are, you think no one will understand yeah. this, but actually we all do, because we go through this. And I think what will be... I mean, be we all know that, but it's that kind of... It's, a, it's the specificity of it, I suppose. And what's going to be interesting, just when we get to some of your clips in the work, is, is that incredibly personal approach to directing or perhaps writing, and then when that meets, I guess, the television machine, yeah. kind of the interplay mm. between <coughs> those factors. So that's something I definitely want to explore with you soon. Um, I really want to talk a little bit about the Australian <laughs> environment. Um, because there's so, so much amazing television coming out of that. And as a little segue, because today is about taking risk, um, is this what I'm about to play you about the relationship between Australia and New Zealand? Is it not? Uh, let's see what happens, see if you can pick the players. Can we just play that clip? No one would have believed in the last years of the 19th century that human affairs were being watched from the timeless worlds of space. No one could have dreamed we were being scrutinised as someone with a microscope studies creatures that swarm and multiply in a drop of water. Few men even considered the possibility of life on other planets. And yet, across the gulf of space, minds immeasurably superior to ours regarded this earth with envious eyes. And slowly and surely, they drew their plans against us. 
Okay, so I guess the, 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 the idea is that, I, I mean, I, I think we look at what's coming out of your country and how it works, and it is, it is incredible, it's exciting, um, and, you know, why, why is that? So I've sort of got some, I mean, let's start with that. I would say, um, I'm not sure it's incredible, but when you're in it, it doesn't feel necessarily incredible. I would say it's the teams that people are putting together oh. and those, <coughs> those teams are making work over a stretch of time and so that the trust between people allows work to really foster. Oh. Like say Matchbox, which is a big production company, they hire young people, they, it's just a, it's like a hothouse of ideas oh. and I would also say the commissioning editors that are working in television and cable, like Foxtel, are wanting to take risks. And they're looking, we're, like we all are, at things like HBO uh. and Amazon and Netflix and being inspired by the specifics of that work. And it's not general, it's like really focused. Can, Tony, can you sort of, Give your take on the on the conversation that's happening around television in Australia at the moment. I mean, you know, we have a conversation about television happening in New Zealand. Mm -hmm. What's the conversation like in Australia? Well, it depends. There's a conversation that I've been involved in, which is only one aspect of, you know, it's not. There's a lot of other television that's being made, but I think Foxtel, which is the cable broadcaster um, in Australia, is trying to get more subscribers and they've got exclusive rights to HBO, and they're trying to do that HBO model in Australia. Yeah. So I've been lucky enough to do two projects with them. Which is The Devil's Playground. Which is The Devil's and Playground and The Kettering Incident. Yeah. And both of them, Penny Wynn, who's the head of drama there, yeah. and Brian Walsh, the head of Foxtel, are trying to get Australians to get Foxtel to get the best Australian product yeah. they can get, which is a really revolutionary... Uh kind of thing to compete with free-to-air television. And, and so in terms of the, the kind of drama that approach produces, what are we seeing? What is different about it? What is different about the way the audience experiences it for that cable Well, I think product? with something like the Kettering incident, for example, it's one of the bravest pieces of television that's been commissioned in Australia because you don't know what the fuck it is <laughs> when you're watching it. Like, it could be murder mystery. It could be sci-fi. Uh. Is it broad church? Is it close encounters of the third kind? You uh, don't know. Uh, Can you... And the beautiful thing is, which I love in films, it's got kind of an unreliable protagonist. Uh, you uh, don't know whether to believe the protagonist or not. Yeah, uh, uh, for sure. You know, she's on antipsychotic medication. You don't know how she got to Tasmania. You don't know. There are all these questions you're asking, which I really love when I'm watching. It's one of the great loves of watching cinema for me. Uh, uh is my brain, like when filmmakers mess with my brain, and you think the story's going somewhere, but it's not. And it's that kind of tension of keeping the audience on the road. And you feel that the, the, you know, the fact that this was made by cable, you know, with, with <coughs> that, that, that actually really was a part of why this is that mm. way. How, would it, how do you think it would be different if it played on network TV? You'd have to know who your protagonist was in the first 10 minutes and what they thought and you'd have to have enough story beats like the first I don't know how many of you have seen the Kettering incident but the first episode or two are quite slow mm. like it's really about place and character and world and setting things up yeah. in a way that they wouldn't have the patience for yeah. when you're dealing with 
are they going to come back from the next ad break? Yeah, right. And what's the you know ad break cliffhanger each time? So what in Australia is is how would you describe the relationship between the creators um, and the f the funders of content? I mean, it's a it's a tricky question. Mm. Um, really honest and good and um, collaborative. Ah. So say the <coughs> night before I left here. Tony and I were sitting with Penny Wynn, who's the person, the drama, the commissioner. Yeah, from yeah. Foxtel, going through a drama series and how right. we could make it better. Right. And then, you know, it's just it's not um, it's not hierarchical in a in a funny way. Okay. It's people mm. as a team trying to make good work. And I think that's what's really exciting about it, mm. is Penny Wynn becomes part of the team and she's the commissioning editor rather than um, the boss that you have to please. So you can argue with her and, <laughs> and she, she's got great ideas and mm. sometimes she doesn't articulate them like we all don't, like me as well. We don't articulate what we, what's actually wrong but we know there's a problem. Uh. And so that ma makes you want to go, well, how do I work that out? So it's, um, I think that's what's exciting. I think it's exciting that we're not all trying to please someone, we're just trying to make good work. And do you think there's an, is there, if we look at the Australian mindset or the Australian attitude and where that intersects with how TV is made, um, what, does it, what does it bring, what does it do really well and perhaps how does it hinder it in a way? I don't know what the Australian attitude is. Okay, right. In I a way, but in a way it's like, uh, I don't know. I well, think we looking to America's a problem uh, yeah. um, and just having the courage to make our own stories. And I think that was great about the Kettering incident. Uh, it was unashamedly Tasmanian. Uh, yeah, but that's what I mean in a way. It's like the specifics of just the stories. That's the power of it in a way. And it's not necessarily how anyone, some Australian mindset, it's just like the practical nature of there is Foxtel oh. yeah, that yeah. has this platform that can put money in stuff to try get subscribers as opposed to putting money in stuff to try get advertising dollars. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? It's kind of not so much the country's hmm. way of being. It's, yeah, yeah. it's the actual practicalities of sort of where the money comes from. Right. And the other thing is we never, I mean, this is the first time I've ever had a conversation about money um, oh. in, in terms of my work. So <clears throat> we, we, never, we never talk about it. Right, 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 right. The only time hmm. we ever talk about it is how many minutes a day do I have to shoot? Well, that's too many. Oh. I can't shoot that many minutes a day because it's going to look like neighbours. <laughs> <laughs> and, then, and then there's probably another conversation that happens. Um, in terms of making great television, what's your relationship with your producers like at their best? Like when it's functioning at their best, what does it bring to you? Like how do you use that relationship? Inspiring, yeah. challenging, yeah. supportive. Yeah. And it's also the, um, the best producers, are your, they, they're your collaborators. Mm. And that's what I think we've both been lucky to work with producers. Beautiful producers. Who are really smart collaborators. So you're just part of a team doing everything together. Because mm. I've also had the experience of working producers who are my boss. Yeah. And just going, 
just do the day, just get, just, yeah, yeah. you know. Yeah, yeah. Like well, you just have to do it. Yeah. Ah. It doesn't work. Like Whereas producers would go, yes, you actually do need 15 minutes overtime or t half an hour to get this because <laughs> it's the most important scene of the episode. Ah. or You know, just that kind of... Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That they have to use their brain in yeah. their expertise with our brain and the DOP mm. and the actors and everyone together. And also producers that are really good storytellers because mm. sometimes mm. you get lost mm. and the producer can say, actually what we need to be doing is this and you talked about this three months ago and I'm not seeing that. Right. And you go home really shitty and upset and then the next day you try harder. <laughs> and I, I think that's a really good thing. I think producers that just give you a bit of a kick up the ass. But it's 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 supportive. It's yeah. like you can tr you can do better than that. Yeah. You you can try harder. Like a woman the other day said to me, um, oh, we just have to pull ourselves together. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and it's it's that sort of attitude. Fantastic. Um, let's let's get on to process. And uh, um, the I remember when the slap came out. Um, and you know, I was in a writer's room, we were talking about it so much. Um, can we uh, show a, a clip from the, from the slab? And this is the episode, Rosie, which you wrote, Kate. Yeah. Could you please state your name? Rosalind Olivia Bryant. Please speak up, Mrs. Bryant. Rosalind Olivia Bryant. Mrs. Bryant, how long have you and your husband Gary been married? Nine years. And how many of those years has your husband been an alcoholic? Objection. I don't see how this is relevant, Your Honor. We submit that it's very relevant, Your Honor. In her statement, Mrs. Bryant claims that her child is suffering trauma as a result of the incident. I submit that the trauma that the child is suffering is due to the alcohol-fueled environment that the child is living in. Hugo's parents were in control. None of this would have happened. Questioning may continue. How many alcoholic beverages had you consumed on the day of the barbecue? Um, two, uh, maybe three. Two, maybe three. And, and you're still breastfeeding, aren't you? Yes. And how many drinks had your partner had? I don't count Gary's drinks. Do you think he'd had more than three? He might have. So who was supervising your child? We were at a barbecue. There were lots of adults. Um, we all take care of the kids. But neither you nor your husband had decided not to drink so that at least one of you could adequately supervise your child. Could the witness please be directed to answer the question, Your Honour? Mrs. Bryant, you are obliged to answer. We hadn't talked about it. It was, um, it was just understood. What was understood? Well, that we would, we would both take care of Hugo. I mean, it was a barbecue. We... Who was driving home? Well, we hadn't discussed it, but I, I would have... I think I would have driven home. I would have stopped drinking and then maybe driven home a few hours later. And what time is Hugo's bedtime? 
Uh, between 7.30 and 9. So usually you would drive home so Gary could keep drinking and then you'd put your four-year-old to bed after 9 p.m. It's not usually like that. No, not usually, but that would have been what we could loosely describe as the plan on the day of the barbecue. Is that right? Yes. Mrs. Bryant, do you breastfeed your son to help him get to sleep? Yes. Even after consuming three alcoholic drinks? Well, not straight away. I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't feed him straight away. I well, that is most comforting. Yep. <laughs> so, okay, give us a, a really brief overview of what the slap is and tell us um, why you chose this clip. The slap is a book by Christos Solkos and it's based on one incident and then the incident's told from all different perspectives. It's also an interrogation of um, Australian parenthood and motherhood and over-parenting mm. and um, that was a scene that wasn't in the book and um, my mother was dying at the time when I was writing the show and she was in intensive care and there was another woman across the in the bed across the way who was also dying and um, I've converted to Judaism and that woman had converted to Judaism it was really weird this other woman and then we started talking because both our mothers were dying and I said oh what do you do and she said I'm a crown prosecutor and I was like yes <laughs> <laughs> and um, so we, she and I would sit with our mothers dying um, and I'd say what would the person say and da 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 and what was really great is she said, it's not often like on TV, she said <coughs> the, the solicitor or the barrister can go in really hard. They can go in really hard on their first question. Wow. And that sort of flicked everything for me because I'd always watch like Law and Order or something. She said the first question, you just want to slit their throat. Oh, so the first question is, how long has your husband been an alcoholic? And that just shifted everything. So it's just one of those things in life wow, wow. that I had a Crown Prosecutor in the room with me. <laughs> yeah, I don't know how you can deliberately manifest that, but yeah, how, how perfect, right? In, in terms of, of the, I guess, the, the wider scope for this piece of writing, yeah. there was a book. Were you part of the storylining process or did someone come to you with an outline? No, we, we, we took, we had the book. And then we had six writers, I think, or five writers. And we all just stayed together for six weeks. And we went, we had three weeks together. Um, and then we went away for a week and we wrote treatments. Um, and then we came back and we all um, interrogated each other's work. And um, then we had three more weeks together and then we started. It was also amazing because Christos was in the room for you sometimes. Yeah, oh, Christos, wow, the, the novelist, yeah. um, was in the room. Yeah. 
Yeah. yeah. And the process is you write a treatment that's interrogated. You write a um, scene breakdown that's interrogated. And then you start your script and that's interrogated. So it's, um, it's a very collaborative process. Yeah, yeah. And it's not necessarily the right one because there's all different models, but that was the one we used. And what was, for this episode of the slap, what was, what was the, if you had to choose one thing that you cared about the most, or that was most sacred to you about this episode? The idea of a woman being crucified about her, her, her character as a mother. Oh. What are you, um, it's like abortion, or it's like, that's my body and um, it was a crucifixion of the idea of a mother being having to be a good woman, and um, that because as a mother, and I'm often really guilty <coughs> that I related to that. Uh -huh. And can can you remember, like, especially with that scene we've just seen, the when you were at your keyboard, yeah, what that process was like? Like, how do you? channel a character? Do you know how that works or it's something that just happens? Um, when writing's going really bad, I'm not channeling and I'm cleaning and stuff, or <laughs> annoying Tony. Uh, but when it's really great, and that would be after like a month of fucking around, um, then I don't have to think about it so much. But the issue with this one was we'd just moved back from Africa and we were living in this tiny, tiny little shitty house and I was getting up at five in the morning and writing in the kitchen um, until like eight when we had to get the kids to school. So there was like a, a, a ticking clock on it and I think sometimes when there's that ticking clock, you can't fuck around, you just have to do it, you know. So it was like, I did it quite quickly because I, I had to. Yeah. We're, we're gonna um, watch a clip from the devil's, no sorry, from the Kettering incident now and mm. it's episode three, which you directed, Tony, and mm -hmm. Kate, you wrote. Did Is I it? write that? Oh, yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. So can we watch part of the Kittery incident, please? Feel better? change anything. I know.
Jeez, you're bleeding. Hey. Your nose is bleeding. Here. Sit down. I'll find you a towel. stuff from her mother's. It's for work. That's bullshit. Were you having sex with her? It's part of the investigation. What, fucking 17-year-olds? My father was a cop. Evidence isn't lying around his house. You would be surprised. She was 17. Why are you using the past tense? So, tense, mysterious, psychosexual, tell us a little bit about this, this clip. Well, it's kind of an interesting clip because um, it encapsulates a lot of what the show does to the audience's brain, which I really like, which it keeps undermining your expectations uh. of where things are going. But at the beginning, like, he's one of the most... Two, her character, Anna, one of the most dangerous men in town. He's a policeman and detective. But she's drawn, she's often drawn to, like a moth to the flame was kind of the metaphor we kept talking about on set. She's drawn to what is most dangerous. But I really love how the scene, which Kate can talk about in the writing, how it just kept flipping, mm. you know, both unexpectedly, because she gets these nosebleeds from time to time, and then the, the bits of evidence where she starts to think, and, and the really lovely thing is, for those of you who've watched the series, which I love about it, is a girl has gone missing, 17-year-old girl, Chloe, and you don't know who the killer might be. You don't know that, whether Chloe is dead or not yet. But both those characters think that the other character is yeah. implicated in the murder. So that kind of tension was really great to play with on set and with the actors. Um, incidentally, the Kettering incident's available on, on Lightbox. Um, you know, it's, I highly recommend uh, watching it. Um, tell us about re rehearsing this scene and what happened on set and getting these performances. Well, I think one of the things that I'm always searching for as a director is to be surprised. Mm. Um, 
and be surprised in a way that's quite rigorous and going through a process to get to that surprise, like not just like, oh, let's make shit up, <laughs> but um, that we'd spent a lot of time talking about it beforehand. We didn't rehearse it very much at all. And then we spoke about it. We went onto the set on the day and we managed to, with, again, good producers and the first AD, have time with the actors on the set and kind of choreographed it like a dance move. Like, oh, what if you're here? We tried it a few different ways. And especially when Elizabeth has to take her top off and stuff, just in terms of getting her comfortable with what it is in her brain so then she can just not worry about who she is as Elizabeth and just get into the character. But also talked a lot about the psychology of both of them and what they were thinking and what they really wanted. Mm -hmm. And when you say talk about, yeah, it's... Let's just drill down to that a little bit. Like, is it, is it just take the form of a discussion with them, or are you provoking them, or asking questions, or how does that actually work between you and the actor? I don't often provoke actors unless they're doing a shit job right. kind of thing, or unless they feel like they're not in it, right. or, you know, to provoke them to, like, in a way of focus. Right. Most of the way, most of the time, it's just a bunch of collaborators working together where we've worked enough together that we all really trust each other. Uh, do you remember, did anything unexpected happen um, you, while you were filming that clip? Or? Well, there were practical things, really annoying practical things, like the nose bleeding. <laughs> kept, you know, each time, each take, the nose, the bits of blood on different parts <laughs> of your body, that's kind of like a continuity annoyance. But the, the thing that really surprised us, and I've spoken to the actors since when they've seen it, yeah. was... I suppose the deep surprise was something, and it's the surprise actually comes back to the writing, is the surprise was we found something I feel really real and true yeah. to these two individual fucked up characters. Right. And getting to a place where we all felt, and especially them because they're in front of the camera, right. free and vulnerable enough to go there mm. was the surprise. Because yeah. often you can read a script and go, that makes sense, let's just do that. but yeah. it's actually having the time to deconstruct it in a way which is throwing out a whole bunch of ideas where in the blocking and in the talking about it, you actually try different things, kind of frees your brain up and frees the actors' brains up to go, we've tried all that, and then what they end up finding is hopefully better than the script. So I'm sure, you know, being TV, you are under the pump, but it sounds like there is this time built into your, your, your method. You, know, you, you do feel like you're getting enough time. Yeah. Well, in practical TV. sense, I think the, the more TV I do, the trick is, and it keeps changing within the day, but looking at the call sheet of what you've got mm. and going, this was our most important mm. scene of the day and it's going to take us the most time. So some of the other scenes that we did on the day, there's a scene where he's on his own on his computer yeah. and we did it in two shots. Right. You know, so it's just kind of prioritising those kind of things and being able to give some stuff time and other stuff. You have to get done in 20 minutes. So there was sort of like a, 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 I guess a micro look at a, at a piece of this board series. Let's go macro because you were working with another director and I want to hark back to what you said earlier about with Jewboy, you know, this really personal experience of your voice and then, and then bringing your Eunice to television and is there a trade-off? Like, is there a discussion? Or, you know, where, where does the, the tone of the series get set? Who sets it? How does that work? I think it sort of comes back to what I said before, like with Jewboy, that it's so specific 
that other people really related to mm. it. So it's kind of a similar thing that happened to me. Like these guys did such a, there was so much specificity in the world mm. that I could rec like I could see myself in Anna mm. and I could see myself in Dutch. And it's, so your role's kind of different as a director where I'd never been to Tasmania before, oh. but it's trying to find empathy with all the characters and the situations they're in. Oh. Oh. And that's a really process I love subjecting myself to because I get to kind of almost feel like I'm experiencing other people's lives. Mm -hmm. And you essentially, I mean, directed half of this. Mm. You know, was how collaborative was your relationship with Rowan, the other director, or was it very sort of cut and dried? Here's my yeah. bits, here's your bits. Well, it's good. Rowan and I have known each other for like 15 years, right. but we've never worked together before. And the producer, Vincent, I've also known for like 20 years. Right. Um, his producing partner, Liz Watts, who was here, I think, last year or the year before. Um, I've worked with for years and she's Kate the, met when she's she was the godmother of our child. Yeah. So yeah. it's um Australia's very small. <laughs> so it's a lot of, you know, a lot of in that way we'd known each other a lot and I hadn't met Vicky Madden who was the showrunner and creator oh. of the show before. But the four of us heading into pre-production all had like Vicky and Vincent were the parents in a way, like it was their show, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but it was a very, they set up a very collaborative space. Mm. So Rowan and I were kind of setting it up together. Mm -hmm. And then it got to a stage probably when his official pre-production started for the first block, where he went off and ran with it more. Oh. But still all locations and casting and everything we were doing together. together. Right, together. And then as it got later in the series, because it was very ambitious and we we're running out of time, he started directing scenes for me and I started directing scenes for wow. him. Um, so there's a lot of, there was a lot of overlap and a lot of trust between us. Is that, is that unusual for television that being able to step into each other's... I've never done it before. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's what I But imagine. I've never been involved in a show like this before. We were there, we were in Tasmania for six months. Yeah. Um, and we, you know, Kate was there and our daughter Ruby was there and um, a lot of the crew brought their families down. So it was a kind of quite a special time for everybody in that way but it was a a very unusual process i think it doesn't normally happen right the, in terms of that in, intense close collaboration that was what you yeah. say is unusual about it and yeah well just in terms of i mean that happened on devil's playground where i directed a couple of scenes for rachel ward and she directed a few scenes for me but that was like bits and pieces uh. kettering just kind of exploded in its in the need for getting more stuff I mean, listening to both of you talk, there's something that's coming through really strongly, which is these really close personal mm. relationships with your collaborators, not just in the work, but outside of the work as well. It's, you know, it's very kind of enmeshed in a way. Can we talk about the writing of, of Kettering Incident and this episode? Um, what were some of the, the, the big challenges for you writing this episode? Okay. Well, usually um, in a series, you know what's going to happen. Um, <laughs> And in this series, when we started, we didn't know what was going to happen. Yeah. Um, they changed the murderer. They, oh, wow. Um, the whole wow. science fiction aspect of it, we didn't know what it was. They changed the murderer? Yeah, yeah. So when it was a friend of mine who's a really gorgeous person and writer, Lou Fox, Louise Fox, um, she and I were writing on it. And basically, we just had to pretend we were Anna and we didn't know what the hell was happening because we didn't. So we just, Lou and I would just make shit up and um, <laughs> hope that it would sort of uh, fit. And how we did that was, what would it be like if we were in a town and we'd come back mm. 
and this was happening because we didn't know anything. We didn't know anything. So, you, so which is a really great choice of Vicky's uh. for this show. So yeah. Vicky wrote the last part of the series and she kind of had a plan, but she didn't let us in on it. Right, okay. She didn't let the directors in on it or the actors. <laughs> so the wow. actors kept going. Like it was really unusual for the actors. You know, we'd be on set, they're going, but what's my character thinking? Where am I going? Uh. And I'd be like, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> but you but, feel but kind of, the suspense, right? Yeah, but the kind of beautiful thing, like we'd get, all of us got really angry at times for different, yeah, because normally yeah. you have the text uh. and you deconstruct the text. But mm. what was kind of beautiful about this process was how in the moment mm. and present you had to be. Mm. Both on set going, this is terrifying, let's just mm. try breathe. And also just go, what is this character doing now? now. And what do you know? Now. in the given circumstances. Instead now. of making any plans about they're going here or they're doing yeah. that. So that was kind of liberating and it just shows you you can do it a million different ways. Wow. And you both, you wrote this episode, you directed this episode. How, how does your relationship, you know, your, your marriage, your family, you know, how, how does that change the way that you work? Um, we've got a 21-year-old and an 8-year-old and... Um, the priority is always the family and then how do we make work around the family and like next, next year we're working on something really bigger than we've ever worked on together, a series that we're doing together and um, we just said to our daughter, oh maybe, maybe daddy can't do it, maybe he should stay in Sydney with you and um, you can stay at your school and she said no. I think we all should stay together yeah. and I'll just go to a new school. Wow. And so, and we know how hard that is for her because yeah. she's she also, says that now. She's <laughs> also <laughs> African and we're moving <coughs> to a, um, the middle of New South Wales and she'll be probably the only um, black child at the school. Wow. So there's a whole lot of considerations for us when we move with Ruby and um, she just wants to stay together. Yeah. yeah. So. But I think as she gets older, that has to shift because we can't, we can't keep moving her, you know? And that's a priority for us with our work. Uh, cool. And in, in terms of when, when you're directing something and Kate's written, do you lock horns or is it very cut and dried? You finish writing it, you hand it over and step oh, away? Totally hands off, never say a word. I'm <laughs> joking. <laughs> so come on, because this is what's one of the fascinating things about this dynamic. So what, I mean, do, does it make the work better or do you run the risk that you can somehow kind of talk it to pieces? Like, No, um, for me, I just say to Tony, I don't know what this should be and is this right? Would they really do that or is that truthful? And he'll say, uh, he'll think about it and he'll give me points or um, it's not, there's not really that much arguing. There's uh. more arguing about the house, <laughs> you know, <laughs> but about yeah. the work, it's, it's not um, an argument. And often our work is never talked about at home. <laughs> like it's like if we were both truck drivers or school teachers, you just want to have a life. Uh. So it's just, it's, part of it but it's not all of it what's for dinner yeah <laughs> um, it's also the thing I'm such a big fan of Kate's writing that it's been so cool to direct two things that she's written because it's you know we've been together for over 20 years so we kind of know each other pretty well and 
there's like a level of trust there as well. So sometimes we'll talk about when I don't get something like, what were you thinking with this scene? Uh. Like, what's it about? I don't quite get it. Maybe I'm thinking, well, I might do this with it. What do you reckon? So we'd have talks mm. about it. But it's also the... Um, mm. The thing we argue about sometimes in not a bad way is when we're looking at rushes and I'm not believing a performance. Mm. And, um, and it's not an argument. It's like, what is he doing? doing <laughs> and and tony will be like i know and then we you know we like <laughs> or tony will come back and say oh how do we work how do we help that actor yeah. be more truthful yeah. how do we help that actor get there uh, you know and that because also the thing is with thing. the way you write sometimes which is so beautiful is actors don't always understand it uh. Because it's, it's complicated. So they're going, I just wouldn't do that. And you go, well, you're not the character. Yeah. You know, like, and they go, okay, okay, I'm not the character. But no one I know would ever do that. Right, right. And go, okay. You know, like, even, so even with this scene, there were, I mean, Elizabeth didn't have that problem. Uh. Um, but there's other people who've watched the show who've gone, why would Anna go to this guy's house? Why would yeah. you have sex with someone you think's going to murder you? Yeah. Of course. Well... <laughs> But then you just say, well, of course you would. Yeah. Because you're really, there's something else. They're both attracted to, we were talking about it yesterday, that whole sex death thing. Mm -hmm. So, and it's a big part of fairy tales. It's a big part of how girls are brought up. It's a big part of our whole mythology. Mm. It's the innocent and the wolf. Mm. And he's the wolf. But in our modern day life, we don't often talk like that. So it's getting beyond the politics of it and getting to more primal places. I mean, since meeting you guys and becoming kind of fascinated with you I've, uh, and watching you know, a lot of your material, I've been playing the, like, is, is there Tony or Kate game with sort of moments? <laughs> and is, um, so we'll watch a clip of Demo's Playground and then just for curiosity's sake, I've got a sort of question about a, a part of that. Can we watch the Devil's oh, Playground? Oh, just before you oh, watch yeah. it, sorry about the, having the tea crowd's big screen symposium <laughs> in the fucking clip. But it's just uh, that we're worried, you know, it might get stolen. It's just security. Yes. It's not me going, I want my name on there. <laughs> Hi. Hi. I won't come in. I was only, I have to go to the school and I, I don't think I can. What's the matter? Peter's locker still hasn't been cleared. It's so stupid. I was on my way, but... Do you want me to come with you? I just can't do it alone.
Here, Tom. I'll nurse it. Thanks, brother. You okay? Thank you for helping me with this today. Devil's Playground. I I I wept while watching it. I found it, you know, it really, really got under my skin. It was felt so important. Um, and just as a as a brief outline for those not familiar with it, um, the year is 1988. This is Sydney, and a, a psychologist is invited by the Catholic Church to help with some of um, you know its problems. And he you know stumbles upon a, a child abuse scandal. Um, yeah. The were you, were you scared at all about making making this show, or, did, or the opposite? Were you like, I want to get in there and tear this thing apart? Um, I was unaware mm. of the effect the real material would have on us because we had to read all the. Um, letters and the documents and the lawyers' letters outlining the abuse on, on the children. And it really affected our relationship with our own children. And it made me think about the police that work, or the um, social workers that work with sexual abuse and how they go home and care for their own children. Because you start to look at your child's body in a different way when you know that it's the seat of desire for other people. And I've got rid of it now, mm. but at the time it was really um, horrible and the actors also felt it because they had to read the real documents yeah. in the show. So that was affecting, but um, yeah, I can really feel the writing in that, like it's sort of, it's so like ticking the dots. So, um, well, we'll talk, talk about that. What do you mean? Um, well, it wasn't for me a great collaboration because mm -hmm. it was, um, it had been through like 10 writers or 12 writers. By the time we came on, it, it was a difficult fraught process. Wow. And then we came on and we did, I did three days with Tony Ayres actually, and we just tried to rework it and Blake Ashford. We just tried to rework it and we came up with a whole new idea for the series and then we went, okay, let's go with that over three days and then we did that. But then it just became about ticking, the, ticking off the dots, the plot dots and it's kind of the worst way to make television yeah. and it's like very old school. So although the, the, for me the issues were important, yeah. the um, mechanics of making it, I can still see it yeah. in the work and um, I don't think any of us should be making work where you can see the mechanics because we all know what it is. Mm. We've all grown up with television, so if you're not, if we're not doing something different, why do we do it? 
How did you feel directing it? Was there a sort of similar set of problems that you inherited, or, or was it a different experience? For well, you so directing like, well, just, um, I mean, Kate just reminded me in terms of the the kind of power of the material the we material, were working with. Yeah, is I sort of felt this sense of duty mm. to the victims of institutionalized violence and abuse. Yeah. Generally, and specifically within the Catholic Church. Mm. Yeah. That terrified me because I'm Jewish. Mm. Not it, just because I don't know enough about the Catholic oh. Church. Like I've, I've learned a lot from working on this process. So trying to make it, I mean, I love, I love um, watching things from communities that I don't know about and I love learning about communities. So the challenge for me as a director was to, I suppose, make it in a way that those, firstly, those people who've been victimized by the Catholic Church could watch this and go, that rings true. Mm, and mm. not like that feels fake, mm. both emotionally and viscerally and even down to you know, costume design and set design and stuff. Um, so, so to take, which is interesting, we were talking before in terms of the role of the director, trying to almost make myself invisible mm. um, to get the most truthful thing from it. But the guy who played the pedophile priest, mm. there was one scene which was the scene of abuse. Mm. And, he, um, and he didn't have to do that much. He was just taking the robes off like the ceremonial, there were like three layers of this 14 year old actor. Mm. And he had a panic attack. Mm. And we had to stop filming for like 25 minutes because the power of, even as an actor having to do that, mm. Mm was so full on for it. Yeah. And he's a compare on play school. Wow. So it was yeah. like really, um, yeah. <laughs> I know. So yeah. it was he's like. Such a beautiful man. Mad. It was just so upsetting <laughs> to him to have to, to do that. Yeah. So, so how, and I, I know we get, we're running out of time unfortunately, but in that situation where, you know, the character that he's playing so mm. violently conflicts with who he is, how did you help him get through that barrier? Um, well, again, it comes to, I mean, with, it's the agreement you make with the actors that goes way back. Mm. And you kind of, like you've said, Kate and I both believe in really tight collaborations and mm. working as a team. Mm. So we were in it, and it's bullshit because as a director, you're not, I was going to say you're in it together, but I'm sitting in a comfy chair with like a <laughs> cup of tea, yeah. going, yeah, maybe another take. You're like, you're not in it together, the poor actor's actually out there. But we were in it together as far as the process. So we shut down the production. And I just sat with him on our own. And we were filming in a church. It was a really beautiful church. We were the only two people sitting in the church, staring at Jesus on the cross. And he was eating snakes, you know, like little lollies, to get some sugar into him. Because he fa almost fainted. And just talked. Yeah. So it's just, again, just coming centering yeah, yeah, in a way. Yeah. And also, he's a gay actor. He's a gay um, Australian man. And I also think there's such um, bullshit around pedophilia yeah. that he also really struggled with that. Yeah. That the idea of being a, a gay person somehow makes him culpable. Yeah. And that really gives me cold shivers. Yeah. So that actor had like so much baggage, which was great because he brought it all with him. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but he, he had to really force himself to do certain things because 
you know, he had a lot of stuff that he he brought with him. Oh. This mm. this very beautiful, humane person. Wow. Yeah. Fantastic. Okay, we've got a very short window for, for questions. Uh, anything you'd like to ask Tony or Kate? There must be like hundreds of questions. Hey, mate. Um, Um, I really like The Night Of. Has anyone seen The Night Of? Yes. Yeah. So I think what is great for me in that is he tells the, the I was talking about him yesterday actually, Stephen Zalian, is that right? So he's an incredible writer and he's got incredible craft. So the series is made by two guys in their 60s who are both, they've got nothing to prove and it's just really unpretentious storytelling and they often tell it in real time. So you're with the characters, and I was talking about it yesterday, I hate, and I do it all the time, this kind of scrambling after drama that we're all doing. And we just, we just know what it is now when we watch it. Yeah. And the night of just floats through it effortlessly. Yeah. And he, he's not scrambling after drama, he's just, it's just, it's just, the characters are finding it. And I think I can see in the writing, not in the direction. <laughs> <laughs> You know, like he has to pick up the, he has to see the light and then he has to pick up pick the light up. and then as he's walking to the car, we have to see him like touch the lighter and we're going, okay, Not we you. get it already. But you know <laughs> what I mean? Because that light is so important because, you know, the priest gave him the lighter and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, yeah. It's those kind of things of finding ways of doing that that's just more through character than through... Yeah, 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 yeah. ...plot devices. We kind of, yeah, kind of like the same things. Um, <laughs> Yeah, but that, but also another, s which I'm really looking forward to, the new season of Transparent coming out in a very different kind of genre. Yeah, but just the levels so of truthfulness that gets to. Uh, what I really love are fucked up characters uh, and dysfunctional characters. And Transparent, just the way it deals with how we're all such fucked up individuals struggling to find our place in the world, it makes me feel so much better about <laughs> life. You know what I mean? It's fantastic. Um, so yeah, and that again is just so grounded in character um, yeah, yeah. that it really moves me. Yeah. 80, I think this has to be our last question, unfortunately. Um, I just love you guys, and um, <laughs> <laughs> I just wonder if we can use the New Zealand money fund that you fund you and Ruby to come over here and sort out the thing on purpose. <laughs> 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 no, um, you know I'm what? <laughs> no, you know what? Um, I think what we're the product of is really great commissioning editors and really great producers because television is producer driven. So if we don't, if you don't have really great producers and um, these fantastic commissioning editors, you don't have an industry. So we are the product of that industry. We are not creating it, they are. Because even a show like Clever Man, which was like on a government broadcaster, I don't know how many of you guys have seen that, but you know, like a sort of sci-fi, indigenous, genre-bending show mm. on the ABC, it's like, that's really brave commissioning editors yeah. pushing it, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, we're about to, oh, one, one more question from the back, Britta. She's from New Zealand. Hamilton. Yeah, she's from Hamilton. So 
I'm not sure. I know, like, whenever I'm with her, we talk a lot about books, and she's an incredible consumer of books, of stories. Stories. You know, she just so she and a good listener. And she just devours stories. So she's got this innate. I don't know if she's trained in, you know, film or mm. media, but she's an incredibly instinctive mm. viewer. She comes back here every year for five weeks at Christmas. And she, no, to the island of Auckland. Why are you? Yeah, with her family, or her, all her New Zealand family, and they get beach houses, and she told us all about it. And reads a lot. And reads a lot. <laughs> okay, I want to thank um, some very special people as we wrap things up. It's FACB, the First Australian Completion Bond. <coughs> They've presented the seminar today, so thanks so much, guys. Tony and Kay, an thank enormous you. thank you from all of us for what you've Thanks, shared mate. today. I appreciate it so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.